Down south, they say it's the economy, stupid. Up here, we say it's the economy, eh? And this is Political A Economy Radio, a progressive take on economic issues in Canada and beyond. My name is Michał Rozwodski, and welcome to the show. Two Canadian updates this week. One from Quebec after the fall's anti-austerity public sector strikes, and another on the state of the Canadian economy entering 2016. First up, I speak with Nora Loretto, Quebec City-based journalist and labor activist, who gives an account of the public sector strikes that shook Quebec and what to expect in their wake. Second, Armin Yalnizian, economist at the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, is back with an analysis of Canada's economy after the oil price crash. Here's my conversation with Nora Loretto. Last time I talked about the situation in Quebec, that was back back in August and was with Roger Rashi, um, and he gave me this sort of interview of the of the situation before this latest wave of strikes. So I thought that maybe the first thing you could do is just sort of bring bring us up to date quickly, you know, sort of what's happened since the early fall. Obviously, there was a wave of rotating strikes in the public sector. Um, what was accomplished? What was the sort of impact, broader impact within society? So all of this, of course, is mirroring um, where, the legislative, where the legislative process is and where the bargaining process is. And so in Quebec, the common front or the front commun has been uh, formally established now for um, more than a year. And it brings together um, the, uh, a couple of union federations, the FTQ, the CSN, the CSQ, and then their kind of sub-affiliate locals uh, to bargain collectively with the government. And they represent public sector workers um, broadly, like, like everything from teaching to uh, healthcare to so- uh, social services and this kind of thing and, and public, public uh, servants as well. Um, and, and there's also unions bargaining outside of the Franc Commune as well. One of the large nurses unions, uh, the independent teachers union, which is a radical union um, that represents uh, teachers across the province, although not like only a couple of unions, because um, otherwise they're represented by another union. So they were bargaining on two, two separate planes. There's sectoral bargaining. So bargaining happening with the government um, on, the, on the kind of the more uh, nitty gritty pieces of people's contracts, depending on what kind of worker they are. And then there's sector-wide bargaining, which tended to focus on salaries because the, the franc commun kind of made salaries the big overarching demand for a couple of reasons. One, um, it was early on argued that it would be, you know, that's the most kind of progressive approach. It's also kind of just a function of the fact that it's the easiest thing to bring everyone together is to talk about salaries. And so, so public sector bargaining was happening throughout the fall. At the same time, the franc commun and the other unions uh, were, were mounting their own uh, resistance to the, the bargaining. Because at the same time as bargaining, you also had a radical restructuring of the public sector being basically just imposed on Quebecers from the Liberal government. And that has actually been the case since they since they took office in, in April 2014. Um, it's just been bill after bill after bill that is looking to reorganize and, and crush, in a lot of cases, uh, workers and and in the public sector, uh, you know. So you have this formal situation of bargaining, but you also can see, have health units being reorganized or dismantled or amalgamated. You have um, cuts to education that is taking away a lot of the important services that students receive in their classrooms. Um, you have um, uh, drastic cuts being imposed on the public childcare system, the CPEs. 
And so uh, unions were in the streets quite a lot, actually. Um, there was uh, a wave of rotating strikes. Uh, the rotating strikes were ramping up, so they started with a, a day of strike, and they were they were very well coordinated to be across the province. And so the, the days of strike um, over the course of a whole week, you know, targeted uh, like the ABTV or the Gaspé or the National Capital Region where where I am, or you know, in in the city of Montreal or on the island of Montreal. And everything kind of came to a head in late November where um, the next set of rotating strikes was supposed to be three days of rotating strike. And the, the Franc Commune uh, called off those three days of rotating strike. And where, where, where that becomes difficult is that um, at the same time as the unions were involved in this campaign against austerity, so too were community organizations. There's about 1,400 community organizations that had received strike mandates for the first time in their history to protest cuts to civil, social service organizations. Um, and so, you know, the Front Commun calls off their three days of strike, but there's but there's the community organizations that were supposed to continue to strike. And so it kind of, uh, it, it was very, it, it threw the whole kind of movement into disarray. And it was right before the holidays. It was right, it was right before exams and things uh, kind of went quiet after that. Um, and as things always tend to happen, it, it remained quiet uh, for the beginning of January because, you know, the House, the National Assembly wasn't sitting. Right. And and the deal in the meantime came out of it, right? Exactly. So since then, uh, the CSN uh, and the, and the uh, well, the, the Franc Commune has recommended adoption of, of a sector-wide agreement with very, 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 very modest salary increases. The, what, the problem, though, is that if you look at the, the other agreement, the, the sector agreement, a lot of times those salary increases are actually undercut by uh, cuts within the sectors. And so you can imagine, like, they're trying to keep all this massive moving group of people all together on the same page, but the government's able to undercut the broad um, agreement with the, with the Franc Commun by giving different sectors of people better or worse contracts, and it's just totally broken um, solidarity. So the Franc Commun recommends adoption of these of the Entente, the the agreement, and every worker has two agreements to vote for. And the president of the FSSS, which is the uh, CSN affiliated health workers, uh, which represents about 120,000 members of the CSN who are who are in the public sector, which is so that must be one of the largest ones. Yeah, it is the largest. Yeah, Uh, their president, Jeff Bagley, recommended defeat. And so now what you have are as every little unit across the province, and this is happening still daily, um, has the opportunity to vote on the system wide and then on their local agreements, um, people are accepting or rejecting the agreements. And and so this is where we are literally every day. I I see new Facebook updates of another school or another uh, health unit, another part of the province that has rejected the sector-wide agreement, but accepted their local agreement or rejected both. Um, and, uh, and I think there's a lot of confusion as to what happens now when you have such kind of disagreement, especially disagreement with the leadership of the Franc Commun. Is the disagreement, are there sort of main axes of disagreement? You know, are there some sectors that are going one way or another, or is it, you know, a, a a disagreement between rank and file and sort of higher level and mid-level leadership, or is it just sort of a disarray all over the place? Well, from what I understand, the Franc Commun is made up of representatives from all of the federated bodies represented by the three big federations. And so you can imagine like a room with like four people from each of the federated bodies 
uh, trying to determine what their priorities are while the government is undercutting their their negotiations either locally or with um, in the case of healthcare workers like they're negotiating with the nurses union completely separately and so there are people in the same class of worker who are members of the CSN or who are members of the FIQ um, but are getting different treatment based on how the government has decided to kind of deal with this but I think I think what's really fascinating about this is that the rhetoric of the franc commun was was very good, very radical. We are going to fight the austerity agenda of Philippe Couillard. We are going to win. And a lot of the rank and file, it seems, believed that. And so what we're seeing is a is a disconnect between the willingness of the leadership to, to go all the way and a rank and file that is saying, yeah, yeah, we're going to fight this, actually. Um, and, and there's not really, uh, at least from what I can see, I don't really see how exactly those two sides will be reconciled in a way that's that's clear. There, there obviously will be reconciled, but will there be public sector strikes? Will there be some organizations going on strike? Uh, that really does remain to be seen. But the language against austerity and the campaign in some ways has probably been more successful than perhaps the leadership thought it was going to be. And that I was actually going to follow up on that. What what has been the effect of the strike wave in terms of a broader anti-austerity movement too, right? Not just within the labor movement, but as you were saying, you know, there's the community groups, um, organizations that were out on strike. And it seemed to some extent, like there was a bit of a repeat of what happened in 2012, where you did have sort of broader social support for, for this kind of movement. What's, what's the state of that? Well, broad social support is kind of hard to gauge because, um, you don't really have um, all that many tools to do that. We know that the majority of Quebecers are against aust- against austerity, like in surveys that comes up. There are community organizations like Je Protège Mon École Publique, I support my, my local public school, um, that has been active since the beginning of the year as well by forming human chains around their school. And those are groups of parents. And um, and they're, they're engaging in activity that is also uh, unprecedented, really, um, supporting their teachers in public sector bargaining, but also um, opposing the the cuts that the that the government is is trying to impose. Then there's like the anecdotes that you hear of people um, talking about how at their own union executive they uh, started out being an outsider, saying we can't accept this agreement, to now uh, winning a, a, a vote uh, to reject the agreement. And I and I was in a meeting last week where this was actually the experience that a couple of people in the room had had, that because they had been mobilizing in very basic ways, like getting involved, making the arguments, uh, mobilizing around the general membership meetings, um, that all of a sudden there's a consciousness that they had never seen before in their own union. The difficulty is, is that these local votes, they're not necessarily enough to change the direction of the common front. And that's some of the dem- democratic problems that, that exist within the common front, that at the end of the day, they, they might have a delegate that goes to another place to make that decision, or they might be outnumbered by other unions that are ready to strike, especially, or that aren't ready to strike, especially if the strike mandate's really low, like just over 50%. But but there certainly seems to be an enhanced activism. And one interesting way, what that was seen was uh, in Quebec City, a couple of weeks ago, there was a march um, against social reform. So the, the one of the things the government wants to imp, impl, uh, implement is a kind of workfare a Mike Harris style workfare program. And for that rally, uh, you know, there was uh, three or four times as many people that 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 the organizers would would say that they've normally seen for a social assistance rally in this city. 
So, you know, you, there's these kinds of things that you can kind of take the temperature on and see where, where people are at. And then, of course, it's worth noting that, you know, it's, it is winter um, and, and winter does have an effect on getting people into the streets. In Quebec, in Quebec of all places, of course. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Has this shaken, on the other hand, going from the sort of from the streets up to up to the other side? Has this shaken the government in any sort of noticeable way? Is there any at least sort of slowdown or or sort of you know thinking twice about some of their reforms? The, the liberals have been uh, very audacious pushing the policies that they're that they're trying to push and their policies of austerity. And there's a couple of reasons for why a lot of this kind of action hasn't seemed to knock them to knock them around. Now, I will say that there have been slight gains. There have been uh, some of the cutbacks were reformulated and more money is going back into the system. Like, like they're the Liberal Party. They're like any Liberal Party in Canada. They can be moved to an extent. And we have seen some of that bending. And they just had a cabinet shuffle where um, it kind of signals that they're entering mentally entering a new era where they're going to try to gun up to get reelected, right? So the austerity that we've seen the last two years is likely not going to continue for the next two years. And then, of course, in three years, we'll all probably be um, crushed, right, uh, in their minds. But but there's a really important electoral or, or political dynamic to all of this that I don't know how clear it is outside of Quebec, but the liberals have virtually no opposition. There's Quebec Solidaire, which does the work that they do, but they only have three deputies. And, uh, you know, they tend to be the only voice that is consistently opposing the measures that the government is opposing on like a good political line. The other parties, though, are in, are in disarray. So like the right wing CAC party has been bleeding MPs since or MNAs since they were elected. And their their president is a bit of a of a joke. The the Parti Québécois, when when Pierre Carpellito became became the head of the Parti Québécois, it kind of also threw that party into disarray as well because you have this guy who's known for his extreme right wing uh, policies uh, in management of of uh, Québécois, and, and Québécois all know Carpellito and they all know what Québécois is. And then all of a sudden, he's apparently now the head of what, what was once a social democratic party. And so they have not been able to, the CAC and the, and the PQ have not been able to hold the government to account in any way. And so like all of the heavy lifting has been done by this tiny party of three deputies in the National Assembly. And um, and it's really, this is the real, the real question about what is the future of the liberals. We know that the liberals can be knocked off their game. The students did it in 2012. It, it did require uh, broader movements of people getting into the streets, which happened around March and April. Um, and they continued until um, they basically were forced to call an election in the summer. Um, but uh, at the time, Pauline Marois really did try and, and put herself out as the voice of social movements as thin as that was. Um, and the PQ is just not in that position to do that right now. And so the liberals are, are still kind of having their, their, their honeymoon in this province in a way that I think confounds me and many progressives um, who've been paying attention. Is there a sense in which, you know, on the one in, in the political sphere, QS could gain from this and come out as that kind of voice? Or are they too small? And on the other hand, is there a sense in which stuff bubbling up you know, like you pointed to some of these 
relationships between the community organizations and the movements, you know, some sort of stuff bubbling up at the community level could also coalesce somehow into uh, into some real sort of broader, you know, more consistent opposition. Well, there, there's um, there's a, a, an interesting kind of reality or phenomenon in Quebec between political parties and social movements, including the labor movement, where it's a very uneasy relationship. And so with Quebec Solidaire, even though most of the people who are really active in the party, uh, even though they're active also in social movement organization or organizing or in their unions, the party is really hesitant to get really involved. And so like the, the, the QS has not come out against the Entente. They, the, the, the support that they've come out with the workers has been tentative. It's been okay. But, but nothing as bold, I think, is what's what's needed to really capture the imagination of people who are really frustrated. But there's also a lot of discussion that we could have about the role of political parties under social democracy and creating real change. QS has a lot of work between now and the next election to get itself into a position where it's a viable alternative. It is totally possible, but that work, like, it has to be done. But pr- potentially more interesting is is actually what can the social movements do to force change and uh, and and can they can they build and build and build enough to force this change outside of the period of bargaining now this this moment is quite unique like there really hasn't been in the history of Quebec uh, a convergence of this kind and and even former ex- existences of the Francomune didn't really make it this far and so every year just like in the student movement you're seeing more and more building happening that's really exciting and and you want to say okay so where are we going to go and it's not that clear um but you know already there's talk about doing something on may 1st there's talk about about using the spring to do what we can to build um but with everything wrapped up into former a formal bargaining there's a there's a legal limit to some of this stuff right like the unions one of the reasons why they're very shy when it comes to uh, uh, f- um, going as far as they might be able to go is because it's very expensive to violate uh, back to work legislation, like really expensive to violate back to work legislation because there's jail time for the leadership. There's um, uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars in fines. Plus there's huge also individual fines, right? Even huge individual fines, plus also paying for people to be on strike. Right. So, um, so at some point we have to ask ourselves, like we are in this moment in, in part because people mobilized around this, this legal framework of collective bargaining. What happens though, when we get out of the collective bargaining framework and actually start to build, uh, towards something differently, the students offered a glimpse of that in 2012. And so it's really anyone's guess to see what's going to happen in the next coming months as, as we try to figure out how to stop the juggernaut of the liberal party machine. That was journalist and labor activist Nora Loretto. Next, progressive economist Armenia Nizian on Canada's economy today. So the major phenomenon is uh, the fact that our petrodollar is just starting to decouple from oil movements. Uh, so we've been hammered as a petro nation, uh, as all of our audience knows. That continued in the early part of 2016. There is a pivot going on in the broader economy as investors divest. And we don't know what's going to happen to stranded assets in Alberta. But uh, the, the, and, and it's not like all the damage has been done yet to the Canadian economy from 
uh, plunging oil prices and what that means to the Canadian dollar. But a large part of the damage is behind us. We're finding two things, as I mentioned, the beginning of the decoupling of the Canadian dollar from uh, trends uniquely from trends in oil prices that just started in this past week or so. The second thing is the beginning of good news that a low dollar is starting to show a pickup in investments and exports uh, in non-energy products from Canada. Um, And uh, I guess finally the idea that the divestment process is beginning amongst the investor class and that will mean that money is looking for someplace else to invest in. Let's hope it's things in Canada. But just to underscore that a low Canadian dollar vis-a-vis the American dollar means very low relative wages. So it's not just exports, things that are made in Canada that Americans buy that is starting to look more attractive. It's things that Americans make that could be made in Canada. Uh, A low dollar means low relative wages, means um, if it stays low for long, we are looking at some uh, uptick in uh, goods manufacturing um, and IT and other technical stuff being done in Canada for a broader market from investors that are from that are not necessarily Canadian investors. You know, we heard a lot about uh, the Rust Belt in southwestern Ontario and, and sort of the decline of Canadian manufacturing during the high do- times of the high dollar, during the sort of, you know, people called it a petrol economy. To what extent that was true? Uh, it depends. Is, is there a rebound on the horizon? What are kind of the effects that have already played out over the last, say, decade um, in terms of reducing the capacity of Canada to create export industries. How's that changing and what's, and what's the impact of policy on that too? Well, geez, a, a high dollar was not enough to prevent uh, the growth in ex- exports of commodities whose prices also grew. Uh, so it depends on demand. The demand side of the equation is going to tell you what's happening to exports. And with that, in that regard, Um, Keeping our eyes on what's happening in China is extremely important. Also in that regard is keeping our eyes on whether the TPP gets ratified by the necessary majority of countries and population, because that may change the supply chains that the United States uses. And right now we are still in, in, to some degree, part of their supply chains. So those two things uh, the China effect and the TPP effect, the uh, Trans- Trans-Pacific Partnership trade deal that reorients the axis of trade from north-south with Mexico and uh, Canada and the U.S. to U.S. with Asian partners um, is in- incredibly important uh, with respect to our export capacity. I think um, a rising dollar will, uh, you know, create havoc because where we're starting to head is more service-related exports also. Yes, we've got um, manufacturing increasing. What's fascinating is, um, you know, if the dollar stays low for long, I mentioned that that means a low relative wage compared to the U.S. You talked about the Rust Belt. We have uh, idle capacity, capacity that was shut down, but we also have 
decades of experience. So the question is, does the dollar stay low enough for long enough to re-entice some of the legacy manufacturers that went away? Is, is, there, is there a role for sort of industrial policy there too? Something that, you know, we don't really talk about anymore? No, that is strictly, uh, unless you're talking about subsidies, which I don't think any progressive is really keen on. There are times when subsidies and uh, government-based financial supports are critical to not lose what we have. Uh, because otherwise we're looking at a brain drain. We're looking at a drain of extremely high paying jobs and the type of jobs that keep us in the orbit of advanced manufacturing visa. And I, I would just reference auto and I would reference in Quebec now, uh, the role Bombardier plays in aerospace. It directly hires 20,000 people, uh, and, its spillover effects are enormous in the aerospace industry. And there's no nation that does not have an industrial policy that subsidizes aerospace. So for us to say, let's not do it because Bombardier is now a penny stock, it's a tough call because of, for a variety of reasons. I'm not 100% behind it. I'm just saying it's no different than worrying about losing auto in 2008 and 2009. It's absolutely no different. In fact, in many ways, it keeps us further ahead on the what economists call the production frontier, uh, the technology that is at the cutting edge that spills over into under other industries. As per Mariana Mazzacuto's book, The Entrepreneurial State, the state can help direct and channel uh, venture capital into cutting edge technology, particularly in green industries, by which I mean industries that change the mix of generating energy that change the ways in which we store and transmit energy and change the ways we use energy, particularly with respect to conservation. So I think the government can play a hugely evocative role uh, to keep Canada as part of a global mission to reduce carbon emissions and have a cleaner imprint while continuing to have the energy base required to grow aggregate demand, which is, as we're seeing with slowing demand, a real problem if we don't do that. And that's a whole separate conversation. Well, that's, the, yeah, that's, I mean, that's, that's a conversation. That was another one of my questions that I wanted to get into out of, um, out of your sort of initial response is what's the role of demand and sort of what are the distributional impacts of the changes that we've already seen, uh, especially like you've said, you know, it, or wages, you know, the fall in the dollar is basically a big across the board wage cut to some extent uh, in the sense of imports becoming more expensive as, as labor becomes and, you know, or labor becoming. I didn't actually touch on the import side of it. Yes, that makes a big difference too. And what you may find is if the dollar remains low for long and it cuts into our purchasing power because we, imp as, a, as a nation, we import a third of our GDP and it's unclear to me whether that ratio is higher for households than it is for business and government. I would expect it would be, but I don't have any numbers on that. Uh, but if we are looking at a third of your purchases uh, now becoming 40% or 50% because, uh, you know, whatever, whatever the reduction is, we may see that, you know, in five years, in 10 years, we're doing much more import substitution, particularly when it comes to fruit and veg, like more hothouse, uh, more hydroponic. I don't know whether that would be the same for auto, 
I, because we are competing with extremely low priced products. And of course we don't have that problem when it comes to housing. So those are the three big tickets, right? It's like how you move yourself, how you shelter yourself, how you feed yourself. And of those three, uh, and I suppose how you clothe yourself. So the food and clothing and auto or other forms of transit, those are the things that we might expect to see more import substitution by local production if the dollar stays low for long and it impacts our purchasing power. Well, one one thing, I mean, the other thing, the other big debate that's been that's been going on about that relates a bit to the dollar as well and, and, and more broadly is this debate between the use of monetary versus fiscal policy and and there's a general distaste, say, towards fiscal policy in, in the world these days. Um, what does that look like in Canada? You know, do we have room to move on one or the other? And what kind of effects can we expect from those? We're now into our seventh year and counting of the response to the 2008-2009 crisis. And we're still seeing some whiplash effects. Uh, particularly in China, which then has its own whiplash effects for the rest of the global economy, but particularly Canada. So what does it mean when your monetary policy room is not exhausted, but getting close to exhausted? And you now have a government that is not saying balancing the books is the most important thing we can do. Uh, you've suddenly got a new discourse with Bay Street as well as with academics about what, how deep should the deficit be instead of should we run a deficit. What is absolutely clear is there, sh- there will be a deficit. What is not clear is how big will it be and how much will it grow just simply uh, because of the effect of uh, the falling dollar and commodity prices and uh, the unvarnished or the untweaked uh, liberal platform from the summer and early fall. We know that there will be additional measures taken. Uh, Six months later, we are seeing that, uh, and there have been verbal promises that the infrastructure spending that was articulated in the liberal campaign platform will be rolled forward. We don't know to what degree. We know we're looking at something between a 16 and an $18 billion hole, for the 2016-17 fiscal, if oil rebounds to about almost $60, $57, and if the uh, federal government does nothing beyond what it said it would do during the election campaign. So we are looking at a pretty deep hole to begin with. Um, the question is, how, and that's not by doing something, that's by not doing anything, really, you know, because the infrastructure program we're talking about it is small. It's small beer. It's not going to. It's not going to move the needle on the economy. So, frankly, the deeper discussion is: Can or should governments try to stimulate additional growth, or should they simply not focus on balancing the books immediately? And then the secondary question that comes out of that is: Should government, the federal government, be fo- and other levels of government be focused on balancing the books within the the time frame? that they initially promised, which is in within the next three and four years. Is, is that important? So we're now having a meta-level discussion about deficits. Uh, not about fiscal policy, but about deficits. Because fiscal policy would say, we're doing this hole digging of the deficit to accomplish something. And we haven't gotten clarity yet on whether that's trying to grow the economy or simply not be a fiscal drag. In other words, 
not be a government that makes things worse, which is exactly what a government that's hell-bent on balancing the books is going to do right now. So, and if, and if you're going to talk about growing the economy, the question is, are you, are you trying to grow demand from offshore or grow demand internally? Or are you looking at it as a supply function that you're trying to make it easier for business to do business? These are extremely different approaches to fiscal policy. And I think 2016 is the year where we just start talking about what is the role of fiscal policy in the context of slow or no, no growth or what I like to call sloth. Yeah. And I, I mean, it, it more, more broadly, sort of, you know, growing the economy for whom I think that's that's sort of what it boils down to, to some extent. Right. What are going to be some of the distributional consequences of this? Well, first of all, we have to talk about are we talking about growth or are we simply talking about not making slow growth worse? and actually triggering recessions. So there's that discussion. But you're absolutely right. When we talk about growth, we should be talking about, and we will be for the foreseeable future, growth for whom and where. And, you know, what are some of the, and that's that's where I think some of this, where the debate's concentrated on the infrastructure. You know, we have two decades of austerity, both on federal and provincial levels. Uh, that's been relatively steady, you know, ups and downs here and there. Uh, and it seems like that's not really entering the conversation as much in terms of cuts to social programs and entitlements and things like that. I don't actually see that conversation anywhere. The only uh, we talk about austerity in the wake of the 2008 nine crisis. We didn't call it austerity in the wake of the, two, the 1990s crisis, but that's what it was. In fact, our agenda was the austerity agenda, and that's what got exported to the rest of the world because we did so well by the end of the decade, which was actually coincidental with the approach taken to public finance. What actually made the economy perform so well was the a boom in the demand for commodities. Uh, so it's real, one of these really weird uh, examples of two things happen and we attribute it to the wrong Cor thing. Correlation, not causation, right? Exactly. And so I don't think you can say we've had two decades of austerity because austerity is about balancing books in the wake of a crisis and what it takes to get rid of deficits at any cost. Uh, and that did not occur from the late 1990s to just after this crisis. So for a decade, you can't call what was happening austerity. But you may want to say that... Um, the last two decades have absolutely been about reducing uh, the contribution of the, at least the federal level of government to the economy. And we have seen the federal share of uh, activity in the economy or spurring the economy drop now to levels we haven't seen since the late 1940s and early 50s, which occurred by accident because of a very rapidly growing economy. And so we do have room to grow the size of the federal government, should we want to do that. To uh, But then the question is, what are we spending the money on? I'm not even convinced anything that the government does is going to um, significantly boost the, the, the pace of expansion of the economy, though there are many things it can do to significantly put a drag on the economy. So that's what I'm worried about. It's not so much about stimulus as, you know, just don't be a drag. And also, whatever it is you're doing, are you working with the parts of the economy that really need support? And are you helping steer the entire macro economy, it, it, you know, in line with the pivot that is occurring 
on the energy file globally, which is to reduce uh, greenhouse gas emissions, to move to cleaner sources of energy generation, and to reduce consumption of energy. We have a role, you know, that pivot is going to take place whether we're on that page or not. And I would dearly hope that we have a federal government that sees this as part of the platform for 21st century growth and that growth needs to be inclusive for it to be strong and for it to be robust and self-propelling, which means wage growth and demand growth at home, not just wage and demand growth in some country somewhere else that you're exporting to. If every nation has an export-oriented strategy for growth, it won't work if nobody's wages are growing, right? Somebody's wages have to be growing somewhere. So the, the biggest engine in our economy is our own consumers, and we need to be paying attention to how wages are responding in the wake of the crisis and how purchasing power is or is not growing. That was Armin Yalnizian, economist at the CCPA. That's all for this week. Talk to you again soon.